Blog Talk Radio. Ladies and gentlemen, George Wilder Jr. trying to do something different here at the George Wilder Jr. show. If it works, <laughs> whether it works, if it doesn't work, you let us know, all right? Okay, it's beautiful in the city of Chicago. Wherever you are in the world, I hope it is just marvelous and uh, and wonderful. And you have a great, great Christmas, great, great happy holidays, everybody. And uh, that's coming from the George Wilder Jr. show. I'm pretty sure a lot of people are going to be saying the same thing. But there's a lot of people... Um, are going to be really, really disenchanted uh, on Christmas, and uh, we should do everything we can to try to help make a Christmas for people who are deservingly um, deserves to have a good Christmas. You know, you know, there are some people out here who do not believe in Christmas. Some people they believe in God, they believe in Jesus, but they don't believe in Christmas for whatever. Reason, warp reason. Anyway, I believe in Christmas. I love Christmas. I'm going to celebrate Christmas. I hope you are too. We're going to be putting up some lights around here pretty soon. <laughs> yeah, pretty soon. Maybe even after the show is over. Who knows? Anyway, Merry Christmas. Happy holidays, everybody. Have a blessed uh, uh, 2019. And uh, hopefully we can get some things done in 2019. I mean, really, really done. Like getting this guy out of office and you know, um, there are so many Republicans around the country. They are, they lost, they lost this thing 
during the blue wave, but they're not giving up. They're trying to find a way to circumvent uh, a lot of things that ha- that have been that the voters want. Uh, it just just goes to prove you that the Republicans are cheaters. They're liars. They're con artists. They should be voted out of office and never voted in again. These they just cannot um, stop with the shenanigans, the lies, the cheating, uh, especially here in Wisconsin, uh, folks. They they are uh, 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 trying to take away the power of a of governor elect before he even takes the office. They're trying to take away his power to submit their uh, power trying to cut him off at his knees. They've done it in in several states where the Republicans control the legislature in some of those states and curtails the power of the governor, the Democratic governor in these states. So uh, if people want to change what's going on in their states, they have to do it. They have to get out there and do it. And some people are. Some people are saying, hey, wow, this is uh, the – this is what elections are all about. Even the Republicans say the same, have said the same thing. When they've won, won uh, offices around the country, they look at Democrats, hey, wow, this is what elections are all about. But the Republicans are, you know, there's one law, there's one way for the Republicans, and there's another way for everybody else, which is totally unfair. So you've got all of these governorships around uh, these Republicans around America trying to circumvent the power of the Democrats who are about to take power. They are doing everything they can to try to uh, belittle them. Or this is, and they don't give a shit about what the people think or what the people want. It's what they want. The Republicans in some of these uh, uh, states around America. Who are in control of their legislature, in in control of the governorships, they are – I mean these people are just um, ridiculous at what they would go through to try to keep power, to try to keep their feet on the back of people's necks, on the back of their voters' necks, on the back of their constituency, and their constitu- constituency have the power to throw their asses out, but even though they – They've lost, but they're still trying to find some way to cement their power. Remember, a lot of these uh, Republicans in these governorships, um, in these in these legislatures around the country, they can be voted out within two years. Okay, especially some of these rep- representatives, they can be voted out within two years, and they are to me they are messing up their legacy. They're messing up what the Republican Party is all about. Well. Uh, what the Republicans were all about because they're about nothing now. The Republicans are about nothing now. They're about cheating, lying, conning. I mean, during the midterm elections, uh, the campaigns, you saw so many Republicans coming up on television around the country saying they're going to protect pre-existing conditions. They all were lying. (laughs) They were not going to protect shit because they've all in the past, voted against pre-existing conditions. They voted against uh, holding on to Obamacare. But you saw them just about in every state running on pre-existing conditions, and they lost because voters were not going to be fooled again. 
And this is what's going to happen in Wisconsin, Mississippi, Alabama, uh, Atlanta, all of these uh, southern states in the south that have these rickety-ass Republican governors and Republican um, legislatures. People are going to start waking up and getting out there and vote. Of course, they're going to try and curtail your vote. Of course, they're going to try to suppress your vote. They're going to do that. And they're going to do it without uh, without question and without remorse and without, you know, they do these things out in the open. They don't hide their crimes anymore. The Republicans' crimes and their shenanigans and their bullshit is right out there in the open, right there. They break the laws right in the open. They lie. They con. They cheat. They don't give a fuck. This is how they win: cheating. And they don't care if you. And they don't care if we know that they cheat. This is what they're about. And it, it breaks my heart to see that a lot of these uh, Republican legislatures around uh, uh, the country are trying to circumvent uh, the new elect governors that are about to take office in January. And they can do it. I mean, there's nothing to stop them from doing it. I mean, if they control everything, uh, they can do it. I mean, it's nothing to – I mean, I, I believe that uh, uh, when Obama was president, I think in his first or second term – the Republicans control the House and the Senate. They limited his powers. They limited his – the Republicans limited his power. All right, you've been listening to the George Wilder Jr. Show on Blog Talk Radio, and it's a beautiful day in the city of Chicago. And I hope it's wherever you are in the world that it's a great day, and we cannot let these Republicans just do this. Obviously, the blue wave didn't <laughs> – didn't mean much to them because they're just crooks, thugs, and, and con men. All of them. And there's and Fox News is acting as as if you know the Republicans have won. You know, so the, there was a blue wave, but we got to keep it going, folks. We got to keep this blue wave going. I mean, even uh, in non-election years, off-election years, where some of these folks are running for this or that kind of an office. Believe me, the Republicans are trying to. Do everything that they can to circumvent, to, to destroy America. They want to get their hands all on it and all over it. But we have to uh, make sure that they, they do not do that. But, you know, these guys and girls are just, they're relentless in wanting to destroy America. They're relentless in wanting to kiss Donald Trump's ass. They are relentless uh, in some of these um, states, North Car- North Carolina, Wisconsin, to name a couple, Louisiana, maybe I don't I don't know I haven't heard much about that, but Texas we have this um, Ted Cruz guy. He doesn't give a shit if you don't like him, as long as he has a job where he can kiss Trump's ass. He doesn't care, you know. So uh, we still have some work to do. We still have some work to do, especially in some of these. Um, States, Oklahoma, I mean, you've got a lot of these states. I've talked to a lot of some of these folks on Facebook, and they say, hey, George, my state is just as bad. We have Republicans who are gerrymandering, who are lying and conning people. And the thing about it, some of these um, Republicans who are running for office, who are lying and conning and running for office, they win. I mean, Mississippi, for instance, 
this ragtag woman, you know, racist woman, she wins. I mean, Georgia, you know, Stacey Adams lose. It was something Stacey Adams said when I was watching her talk before the, before the final results of the election in Georgia. It was something about her that I didn't like. It was something there that was was not uh, kosher. Uh, it was something. But anyway, she would have been better than a Republican. I mean, let me put it that way. All right, you've been listening to the George Wilder Jr. Show. Let's see what's, what's in the news today. What can we talk about today? Um, what can we lambast about today? What, what can we bl- – oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, uh, George H.W. Bush. I mean, uh, yeah, he, uh, he was a – I mean, you know, uh, studying his life, researching his life, he was a great patriot. I mean, more so than the, than the jackass we got now. Uh, George W. Bush was a was a man's man. He was a, a I mean, uh, I think for the majority of his life he was in politics or wanted to be in politics when he first started out. You know, he, it was just politics, politics, politics. Uh, he chose the wrong party, I think. <laughs> Uh, yeah, they're having all kinds of uh, celebrations and 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 remembrance of George W. Bush, and it's just so it was just so sickening to see Trump walking up and around the cast that the the the, the U.S. flag draped cast casket that was carrying the body of uh, George H.W. Bush, and there was Trump. Good God, and he looked like he was pissed off. Trump looked like he was totally pissed off. I can tell you this, he probably he probably was thinking about the Russia and Robert Mueller, the probe, the investigations. <laughs> Mark Cohen, Mark Mark uh Mark Cohen or or either Mike Flynn. Michael Cohen Markman, sorry about that. Anyway, he probably had the probe on his mind. He looked mean and nasty and honorary. He doesn't know how to to uh emit empathy. Caring, sorrow, sympathy. <laughs> he doesn't know how to do that as president. And yeah, as president. And one of the one of his jobs is to do that. His job is to do that. When something was a catastrophe around the country, like fires in California, whether he likes California or not, or whether California likes him or not, his job as president. President, excuse me. Uh, is to admit some sort of uh, empathy, and he can't do that. His mind is on the Russia probe, and also his mind is on himself. It's all about Donald Trump, and that's one of the reasons why I don't think Donald Trump really liked going to George George Bush's George H W Bush's funeral because it was not about him. It was not about him. The focus was not on him. The focus was on a dead president and a dead patriot, a dead American. It wasn't on him. And Donald Trump is pissed. And anybody who's following Donald Trump, anybody who knows Donald Trump knows that that is true. If it ain't about him, he doesn't give a fuck and he doesn't want to go. He he may have been made or pushed to go because someone told him, hey, that's your job. That's what you do. But Donald Trump is too busy worrying, uh, worrying about when, when the indictments are going to come. 
And people were saying, well, Donald Trump should resign. Donald Trump is not going to resign. I've said this a thousand times. He's not going to resign. Two reasons. He loves power. He just is crazy about power. He loves it. Secondly, he will not resign because if he resigns, he immediately becomes a private citizen and he will be arrested for his crimes, for all of his crimes. Um, I don't think Mueller should – when Mueller concludes his investigations and his findings and he comes up with some final results, I don't think he should hand it over to the Republican Congress. I think he should probably wait until January 3rd until the, um, the Democrats take over. Because I, I think if he hands it over to the Republicans, they're going to bury it. They're going to lie. They're going to cheat. They're going to change it. They're going to manipulate it because this is, this is the kind of people that they are. This is what they are. This is what they are. And once again, our sympathies at the George Wilder Jr. Show go out to George W. Bush and his family and his family. I think there's going to be a day of remembrance for the entire United States. There's going to be um, offices are going to be closed. There's not going to be any mail. Um, it's just going to be a day of remembrance for him. Uh, uh, you know what I'm thinking? I'm thinking Trump, Trump is saying all of this is because of George W. Bush. And I'm thinking that Trump is probably thinking that something like that is not going to happen when he dies. <laughs> We're going to spit on his grave when he dies, you know, because he is a traitor. He's a terrorist. He's a hater. He's a he. He calls himself a white nationalist. Hell no, he's not going to get any kind of celebrations like that after he's dead. People are going to be dancing on this fucking grave, rightly so. All right, you've been listening to the George Wilder Jr. Show. <gasps> oh, excuse me, <laughs> on Block Talk Radio. And uh, we're going to do this right quick, and we will be right back. Donald Trump's cabinet is filled to the brim with millionaires. People who have more money than they know what to do with. And the top three wealthiest people, Betsy DeVos, Steve Mnuchin, and Wilbur Ross, they all made tens of millions of dollars while serving in the federal government just last year. According to the newly obtained financial disclosure reports of these three multimillionaire individuals, Again, they each walked away with roughly tens of millions of dollars in profit. Now, some of that money did come from divesting in things that they owned, in, in stocks and other companies. They did divest a little bit of it. So they sold that off and they made money and that gets reported. But most of them didn't divest. Steve Mnuchin, believe it or not, actually did a good job divesting. Uh, the ethics uh, uh, folks show that, yes, he did divest all of his stuff, but he made a ton of money selling it off or investing in others. But Betsy DeVos and Wilbur Ross didn't fully divest. In fact, they both still own stakes in companies and other businesses that directly benefit from the policies that they put in place. In fact, Wilbur Ross is facing a a massive investigation at the moment because he seems to only be using his office to make himself more money. And that's that's the takeaway here. That's the point. Right now in the United States, and even before Trump came into office, we have government 
run by millionaires for the benefit of millionaires. The federal government, the way it is right now, and this may change in January with some of these new coming Democrats in the House of Representatives, but right now, the government only works for millionaires. And it has become exceptionally bad during the years of Donald Trump now. Let me ask you this question. And please, if, you, if you've got an answer to it, comment on this video. But let me tell you, think of one thing that this administration, any agency within this administration, one thing they've done that's been for the benefit of American consumers and not to benefit a corporation. I have been covering this literally every single day since this man was sworn in and even well before that. And I can promise you, there's not one thing. There isn't one thing. There isn't one rule that Betsy DeVos's Department of Education or Steve Mnuchin as Secretary Secretary of the Treasury, excuse me, or Wilbur Ross at the Commerce Department. There isn't one rule any of these people have put in place that actually benefits consumers over corporations. Not a single one. Same thing with the EPA. They don't give a damn about people anymore. And it's the same thing with the Republicans in the House and the Senate they, and the White House. They really don't. Now again, they don't the glimmer of hope is that we've got this new Democratic really majority coming into the House of Representatives. We've got a lot of progressives, a lot of populists, people pulling the party to the left, denying money from corporations, working for the people. They do not give two but shits about people. But at this point, people. so much damage has been done that our government only functions if you're in the top 1%. If you're in that top 1%, you're protected. Don't worry about the rules coming out of this government because they're going to be to your benefit. But if you're the rest of us, you worry about things like paying for your health insurance, paying for prescription drugs, worried about the, the safety of the water that comes out of your tap every time you turn it on, worried about not. the quality of our food that seems to be getting recalled because of things like salmonella and E. coli every other day. You know, we can't even have a meal without worrying if it's going to poison us because we've cut funding for the FDA to actually go out there and do food inspections so that meat packers could save $12 million this year. That's actually a thing that happened, folks. That's why we've got so many salmonella and E. coli recalls right now. We're struggling. We're getting poisoned by food. We're getting poisoned in the environment. We're getting poisoned by corporations. But the top 1% is doing just fine. They don't have to deal with the same crap we do because the federal government makes sure that those millionaires and billionaires are 100% protected because those millionaires and billionaires, at least right now, not only are they running the government, but they're making sure that the government only works for them.
Leading off our discussion now, John Heilman, National Affairs Analyst for NBC News and MSNBC and co-host and executive producer of Showtime's The Circus. Right. Also joining Welcome us is Ambassador Wendy Sherman, former Undersecretary of State. She was the United States' lead negotiator for the Iran nuclear deal and is now an MSNBC Global Affairs contributor. And Ambassador Sherman, I want to start with you on this uh, Trump the nuclear threat, it sounds like, to Iran. I'm not taking it seriously, and I'm not taking it seriously based on the North Korean experience uh, with the president and the five months he took us through of threatening North Korea before completely uh, reversing course completely and trying to make best friends with Kim Jong-un. Uh, how do you read what the president said about Iran? Well, I certainly think it was a distraction and deflection in the way that you described it. And somehow, I think I ought to speak in all caps as if I will be heard louder. But I think we all know that when you're talking about serious things, a quieter voice makes a lot more sense. Uh, indeed, I think that the president uh, is trying to goad Iran into a conflict. Uh, Secretary Pompeo gave a speech in California at the Reagan Library and uh, really pushed hard, saying we're for the Iranian people and uh, your government is corrupt and uh, they're all hardliners and they're not going to give you a break, but we can. And he said that at the same time and invoked Ronald Reagan's call for freedom in his 1982 Westminster speech. He did that the couple of days before President Trump said he was going to take security clearances away from people who were speaking up and speaking their minds. So we're not exactly a beacon for freedom that Secretary Pompeo put out there. And we have a president that has a playbook for Iran and a playbook for North Korea, but no strategy to get an outcome that ensures the safety and security of America. John, I want to read you what uh, Tony Schwartz said about the Trump tweet. Uh, and Tony Schwartz, of course, the author, I was going to say co-author, but he's the real author of The Art of the Deal, the first Trump book. Spent. I, I believe he wrote every word in the entire book, including yeah. the articles. And, and, and really stuff. studied yeah. Donald Trump up close, got to know him. He said, uh, there was nothing strategic about Trump's schoolyard bully, all caps tweet about mm -hmm. Iran. When he feels weak and vulnerable, he lashes out uh, in an effort to recover his sense of self, which is so fragile and easily wounded. I often... Um, scare people on television when I talk about Donald Trump, but like dark and paranoid and, um, and, and, and ominous. I always think when he's tweeting about something, I shouldn't worry about it very much because it's mostly when he's tweeting about it, it's something, it's gibberish most of the time, right? And it is just deflection and projection and, and incoherent rambling. The stuff he doesn't tweet about is the stuff he cares about. What, he does, what doesn't he tweet about? Doesn't tweet about Playboy models. Doesn't tweet about Michael Avenatti, doesn't tweet about Stormy Daniels, doesn't tweet uh, very much about the people who he's trying to take their security clearances away. Every once in a while he does that, but then he try, tries to do something like he did today. But the stuff that scares him, the stuff that worries him, oh, I'll tell you what he doesn't tweet about, doesn't tweet about Paul Manafort very often, right? Mm -hmm. The people who are a genuine threat to Trump, the people who are, as you said before, there's been a lot of panic over the last 18 months. We've seen flashes of it. But right now, you really feel the walls closing in. And I always think that when he's tweeting about Iran, it's dangerous. And so it concerns me. Mm -hmm. But I don't take a word of it seriously because it is really just the ultimate look at the squirrel. Mm -hmm. and, and, and Ambassador Sherman, it it's, couldn't be more strange that, that uh, the place we look for for uh, encouragement, uh, the, the encouraging side of what uh, Donald Trump tweet uh, threatening yeah, he didn't like uh, Trump a nuclear either. attack is that the encouraging really side of it is, oh, don't worry, the president doesn't mean a word he says. Like, that's, that's where we go for comfort. 
In, indeed, you know, we saw the fire and fury around North Korea, and we saw this pomp and circumstance instead of a persistence and precision. Now we're seeing, you know, the schoolboy uh, speaking loudly and showing off how strong and powerful he is, when in fact all we're seeing is weakness and insecurity. Iran sees this. This is a culture that believes you either resist or you surrender, and they are not going to surrender one iota to Donald Trump. They understand what the game is here. Look, I'm all for standing up for the human rights of the Iranian people, and I quite agree that all of the leaders in Iran, even those that we call moderate or hardliners, but the way to help the Iranian people was the Iran deal that helped the people of Iran by lifting sanctions, and it ensured our security and the world security by ensuring there wouldn't be a nuclear weapon. I have no idea what President Trump thinks he's going to do. A tweet is not going to get him a quote-unquote better deal. And, John, a uh, new NBC Wall Street Journal poll shows that uh, the president's approval rating is, is far below uh, majority. But 88 percent of Republicans say uh, they support the president. Right. And unfortunately, in most of the media, they never do the math on what that actually means, yeah. since only 26 percent of voters are Republicans. Here we go. 88% of 26% is something like 23% yeah. of voters support Donald Trump. Republican Party is shrinking. And that, and uh, man, you talked about getting abused by Fox News. I'm going to get abused for saying that. The Republican Party is shrinking. The Republican coalition That's just is shrinking. A numerical fact. It's just a numerical yeah. fact, right? So we, have, we spend, and I, this will be the third time today I've said this, we spend a lot of time focused on the Trump voter. We spend a lot of time focused on Trump's base. I don't think it's wrong that we focus on it because it is the way, if you try to understand what Trump's doing, shoring up that base, it explains a lot of his tactical maneuvers. It explains his long-term plan to try to survive uh, the onslaught that he's facing right now on a variety of legal fronts. But in the end, the country's not with Donald Trump. Right. And, and, and we normally, in every election I've ever covered, going back to 1988, we focus on independent voters, moderate voters, swing voters. We focus on, on, on all kinds of voters who make the difference in elections. Now we don't talk about that anymore. All we talk about is the Trump base, the Trump voter, how the Republicans in this shrinking Republican coalition are with them. Instead of focusing on the fact that the ABC News poll today said 75% of the American people are against him attacking the intelligence agencies. Two-thirds of the American people are against the health, or disapprove of how he handled the Helsinki summit. The vast majority of America is against Trump on these major issues. And again, I, I think we have to focus on his supporters because it's so important to what he's doing in the White House. But we also have to focus on the bigger picture, which is that the country on the important issues, and this is huge political salience for these midterms and for his reelection if he gets that far, the vast majority of the country is not with him. Uh, and Ambassador Sherman, I just wanted to get your reaction uh, more fully to uh, this announcement by the White House today that not only uh, are they thinking about taking away uh, John Brennan's security clearance, uh, basically uh, FBI, former FBI Director Comey, James Clapper, uh, Hayden Rice McCabe as uh, Sanders. So a, a cross-section of uh, oh, former uh, Trump administration officials, uh, and I'm sorry to say you're not on the list, you didn't make that particular honor roll, uh, but, but what you, this is an unprecedented uh, position by the White House. What's your reaction to that? It's unprecedented, it's absurd, and quite frankly, I and many other people could be on that list. Many of us have security clearances. When I left the administration, 
uh, I went on the President's Intelligence Advisory Board and kept my clearances. Then when that term ended, the intelligence community wanted me to keep my clearances because they wanted me to debrief them on the negotiations and on how we try to get Americans who are held hostage out of countries. They wanted information. If you have security clearances, it doesn't mean you get to read everything and know everything. It's on a, as a need-to-know basis. So I haven't been back to the intelligence agencies in some time now, don't have a right to do that, but I still have my clearances. I would take it as an honor to be on that list. It is absurd. It is ridiculous. These are patriots who are standing up for the freedom that Secretary Pompeo talked about the other night. It's worse than that, though. It's not just absurd and ridiculous. It is dangerous. And it is, yes. it is, it is yes. of a piece with the way the president talks about withdrawing a broadcast network's uh, licenses, uh, pulling mm -hmm. credentials of, of a journalist who asks him questions he doesn't like. This is uh, the beginning of a step of how the president is trying to exercise actual power to try to silence people whose criticism threatens him. And I think it is, it's not we shouldn't set our hair on fire about it, but we should look at it and say this is an early warning sign of where this could go pretty quick. Quite agree. We're going to have to take a break here. Ambassador Wendy Sherman, John Homan, thank you for starting us off tonight. Thanks, Thanks for checking everybody. out. Thanks for joining us, everyone. And this has it's been a really huge day in the Mueller investigation. Our blockbuster news, the president's former fixer and keeper of secrets, apparently not keeping those secrets anymore. I'm talking about Michael Cohen. He's saying that he was lying to protect the president when he told Congress that negotiations to put a Trump Tower in Moscow ended before the Iowa caucuses. Cohen, as part of his surprise guilty plea today to a charge from Robert Mueller, now says those negotiations continued well into the presidential campaign until June of 2016. He also says he discussed the project with Donald Trump himself on more than three occasions and briefed Trump family members working with the Trump organization. That means then-candidate Trump was trying to do business with Russia in the middle of a campaign that Russia interfered in to help elect him. Yep. And get a load of this detail, which sounds like it would be straight out of the Trump playbook. One idea for marketing Trump Tower Moscow was to offer Vladimir Putin the $50 million penthouse. That's according to Felix Sater, a Russian-born one-time business associate of Trump's who worked on the project with Michael Cohen. For what it's worth, Rudy Giuliani tells CNN the president never heard about the idea. But Trump Tower Moscow was just one of the topics Cohen discussed in over 70 hours of questioning by Mueller's team. He's expected to continue cooperating with Mueller. But here's the thing that's got to have this president really, really, really rattled right now. The news broke after he turned in his written answers to Mueller's questions including questions about the Moscow project. And if the president's Ooh. answers don't match what Cohen now says, that spells Ooh. big trouble. Rudy Giuliani says there's no contradiction, and we haven't seen those answers. But Robert Mueller has. The president reacting to all of this just about the way you'd expect, because sources are telling CNN tonight that he is, quote, in a terrible mood, spooked and completely distracted. Which... Sounds about right. But a little over an hour after Cohen dropped his bombshell this morning, the president stood before the cameras on the South Lawn and did what he always does. First, deny. He's trying to get a much lesser prison sentence by making up a story. So very simply, 
Michael Cohn is lying and he's trying to get a reduced sentence for things that have nothing to do with me. Then backpedal. We were thinking about building a building. I guess we had in a form. It was an option. I don't know what you'd call it. Uh, we decided, I decided ultimately not to do it. And then, there's a formula here, and then make excuses. Now here's the thing. Even if he was right, it doesn't matter. Because I was allowed to do whatever I wanted during the campaign. So it has nothing to do with me, but I was thinking about doing it and deciding and decided not to. And it doesn't matter because I could do whatever I wanted. Pure Trump. You know what else is pure Trump? Lying. So Michael Cohn has made many statements to the House, as I understand it, and the Senate. He put out a statement talking about a project which was essentially, I guess, more or less of an option that we were looking at in Moscow. Everybody knew about it. It was written about in newspapers. It was a well-known project. So he's lying about a project that everybody knew about. This deal was a very public deal. Everybody knows about this deal. So that is not true. The potential deal for Trump Tower Moscow never came to light until after Trump took office, long after the deal was canceled. <laughs> CNN did some digging and found that the project was first mentioned briefly in an article in the New York Times in February 2017. But details were few and far between until Cohen testified on Capitol Hill in August of 2017. So, no. It was not a very public deal. And it certainly was not public while Donald Trump was running for president. And that is because Trump never mentioned it. Despite question after question about any involvement with Russia, on July 26, 2016, he tweeted this, for the record, I have zero investments in Russia. And then the next day he said this. I have nothing to do with Russia. I have John, John, how many times do I have to say it? Are you a smart man? I have nothing to do with Russia. I have nothing to do with Russia. Not one word about the Trump Tower Moscow deal. In fact, he never mentioned it. Not once. And all the times he was asked about Russia during the campaign, after he was elected, and after his inauguration. You said you have no investments in Russia, but do you owe any money to Russian individuals and institutions? No. Will I sell condos to Russians on occasion? Probably. I mean, I do that. I have a lot of condos. I don't have any deals with Russia. I had Miss Universe there a couple of years ago. Other than that, no. We could make deals in Russia very easily if we wanted to. I just don't want to because I think that would be a conflict. I own nothing in Russia. I have no loans in Russia. I don't have any deals in Russia. I had the Miss Universe pageant, which I owned for quite a while. I had it in Moscow a long time ago. Uh, but other than that, I have nothing to do with Russia. You're the one I, I don't have, a, I could, but I didn't because I think it would be a conflict. He said it right there. But I did. Listen to what happened when CBS's Nora O'Donnell asked then-campaign chairman Paul Manafort about Russia back in 2016. So to be clear, Mr. Trump has no financial relationships with any Russian oligarchs. That, that's what he said. I, I, that's what I said. That's obviously what the, the, our position is. Uh, yeah, we got to play it one more time. Let's play it, please. 
So to be clear, Mr. Trump has no financial relationships with any Russian oligarchs. That, that's what he said. I, I, that's what I said. That's obviously what the, the, our position is. <laughs> oh, that was really, really awkward. I still have no idea what he said there, but that's, doesn't that just sum all of this up, the whole day, just all of it? That's what he said, if that's what, that's what, I mean, if that's what he said, that's what happened. But as we always say around here, facts matter. And as more facts emerge from the Mueller investigation, the real question is, what will this president do? Hopefully he'll, hopefully he will resign. This is what I call. Take Trump from the White House, kicking and screaming, kicking and No one to put you out. 
all I wanted was a much-deserved promotion, and he told me to get up on the desk and spread them. All the men in my office wrote down on a piece of paper the sexual favors that I could do for them. All I had asked for was an office with a window. I asked for his advice about how I could get a bill out of committee. He asked me if I brought my knee pads. Those are just a few of the horrific stories that I heard from women over the last year as I've been investigating workplace sexual harassment. And what I've found out is that it's an epidemic across the world. It's a horrifying reality for millions of women when all they want to do every day is go to work. Sexual harassment doesn't discriminate. You can wear a skirt, hospital scrubs, army fatigues. You can be young or old, married or single, black or white. You can be a Republican, a Democrat, or an Independent. I heard from so many women, police officers, members of our military, financial assistants, actors, engineers, lawyers, bankers, accountants, teachers, journalists. Sexual harassment, it turns out, is not about sex. It's about power and about what somebody does to you to try and take away your power. And I'm here today to encourage you to know that you can take that power back. On July 6, 2016, I jumped off a cliff all by myself. It was the scariest moment of my life, an excruciating choice to make. I fell into an abyss all alone, not knowing what would be below. But then something miraculous started to happen. Thousands of women started reaching out to me to share their own stories of pain and agony and shame. They told me that I became their voice. They were voiceless. And suddenly I realized that even in the 21st century, every woman still has a story. Like Joyce, a flight attendant supervisor whose boss in meetings every day would tell her about the porn that he'd watched the night before while drawing penises on his notepad. She went to complain. She was called crazy and fired. Like Joanne, Wall Street banker, her male colleagues would call her that vile C-word every day. She complained, labeled a troublemaker, never to do another Wall Street deal again. Like Elizabeth, an army officer, her male subordinates would wave one-dollar bills in her face and say, dance for me. And when she went to complain to a major, he said, what, only one dollar? You're worth at least five or ten. After reading, replying to all, and crying over all of these emails, I realized I had so much work to do. Here are the startling facts. One in three women that we know of have been sexually harassed in the workplace. 71% of those incidences never get reported. Why? Because when women come forward, 
They're still called liars and troublemakers and demeaned and trashed and demoted and blacklisted and fired. Reporting sexual harassment can be, in many cases, career-ending. Of all the women that reached out to me, almost none are still today working in their chosen profession, and that is outrageous. I, too, was silent in the beginning. It happened to me at the end of my year as Miss America, when I was meeting with a very high-ranking TV executive in New York City. I thought he was helping me throughout the day, making a lot of phone calls. We went to dinner, and in the back seat of a car, he suddenly lunged on top of me and stuck his tongue down my throat. I didn't realize that to get into the business, silly me, he also intended to get into my pants. And just a week later, when I was in Los Angeles meeting with a high-ranking publicist, it happened again, again in a car. And he took my neck in his hand, and he shoved my head so hard into his crotch, I couldn't breathe. These are the events that suck the life out of all of your self-confidence. These are the events that, until recently, I didn't even call assault. And this is why we have so much work to do. After my years, Miss America, I continued to meet a lot of well-known people, including Donald Trump. When this picture was taken in 1988, Nobody could have ever predicted where we'd be today. <laughs> Me fighting to end sexual harassment in the workplace. He, President of the United States, in spite of it. And shortly thereafter, I got my first gig in television news in Richmond, Virginia. Check out that confident smile with the bright pink jacket. Not so much the hair. <laughs> I was working so hard to prove that blondes. Have a lot of brains, but ironically, one of the first stories I covered was the Anita Hill hearings in Washington D.C., and shortly thereafter, I too was sexually harassed in the workplace. I was covering a story in rural Virginia, and when we got back into the car, my cameraman started saying to me, wondering how much I had enjoyed when he touched my breasts when he put the microphone on me, and it went downhill from there. I was bracing myself against the passenger door. This was before cell phones. I was petrified. I actually envisioned myself rolling outside of that door as the car was going 50 miles per hour, like I'd seen in the movies, and wondering how much it would hurt. When the story about Harvey Weinstein came to light, one of the most well-known movie moguls in all of Hollywood, the allegations were horrific. But so many women came forward, and it made me realize what I had done meant something. He had such a lame excuse. He said he was a product of the 60s and 70s, and that that was the culture then. Yeah, that was the culture then, and unfortunately, it still is. Why? Because of all the myths that are still associated with sexual harassment, women should just take another job and find another career. 
Yeah, right. Tell that to the single mom working two jobs, trying to make ends meet, who's also being sexually harassed. Women, they bring it on themselves by the clothes that we wear and the makeup that we put on. Yeah, I guess those hoodies that Uber engineers wear in Silicon Valley are just so provocative. <laughs> Women make it up. Yeah, because it's so fun and rewarding to be demeaned and taken down. I would know. Women bring these claims because they want to be famous and rich. Our own president said that. I bet Taylor Swift, one of the most well-known and richest singers in the world, didn't need more money or fame when she came forward with her groping case for one dollar. And I'm so glad she did. Breaking news: the untold story about women and sexual harassment in the workplace. Women just want a safe, welcoming, and harass-free environment. That's it. So, how do we go about getting our power back? I have three solutions. Number one, we need to turn bystanders and enablers into allies. 98% of United States corporations right now have sexual harassment training policies. 70% have prevention programs. But still, overwhelmingly, bystanders and witnesses don't come forward. In 2016, the Harvard Business Review called it the bystander effect. And yet, remember 9/11. Millions of times we've heard, "If you see something, say something." Imagine. All I wanted was a much-deserved promotion. And he told me to get up on the desk and spread them. All the men in my office wrote down on a piece of paper the sexual favors that I could do for them. All I had asked for was an office with a window. I asked for his advice about how I could get a bill out of committee. He asked me if I brought my knee pads. Those are just a few of the horrific stories that I heard from women over the last year. As I've been investigating workplace sexual harassment, and what I've found out is that it's an epidemic across the world. It's a horrifying reality for millions of women when all they want to do every day is go to work. Sexual harassment doesn't discriminate. You can wear a skirt, hospital scrubs, army fatigues. You can be young or old, married or single. Black or white, you can be a Republican, a Democrat, or an Independent. I heard from so many women, police officers, members of our military, financial assistants, actors, engineers, lawyers, bankers, accountants, teachers, journalists. Sexual harassment, it turns out, is not about sex. It's about power, and about what somebody does to you to try and take away your power. 
And I'm here today to encourage you to know that you can take that power back. On July 6, 2016, I jumped off a cliff all by myself. It was the scariest moment of my life, an excruciating choice to make. I fell into an abyss all alone, not knowing what would be below. But then, something miraculous started to happen. Thousands of women started reaching out to me to share their own stories of pain and agony and shame. They told me that I became their voice. They were voiceless. And suddenly I realized that even in the 21st century, every woman still has a story. Like Joyce, a flight attendant supervisor, whose boss in meetings every day would tell her about the porn that he'd watched the night before while drawing penises on his notepad. She went to complain. She was called crazy and fired. Like Joanne, Wall Street banker, her male colleagues would call her that vile C-word every day. She complained, labeled a troublemaker, never to do another Wall Street deal again. Like Elizabeth, an army officer, her male subordinates, would wave one-dollar bills in her face and say, dance for me. And when she went to complain to a major, he said, what, only one dollar? You're worth at least five or ten. After reading, replying to all, and crying over all of these emails, I realized I had so much work to do. Here are the startling facts. One in three women that we know of have been sexually harassed in the workplace. 71% of those incidences never get reported. Why? Because when women come forward, they're still called liars and troublemakers and demeaned and trashed and demoted and blacklisted and fired. Reporting sexual harassment can be, in many cases, career-ending of all the women that reached out to me, almost none are still today working in their chosen profession, and that is outrageous. Uh, this is the next renewal. I too was silent in the beginning. It happened to me at the end of my year as Miss America, when I was meeting with a very high-ranking TV executive in New York City. I thought he was helping me throughout the day, making a lot of phone calls. We went to dinner, and in the back seat of a car, he suddenly lunged on top of me and stuck his tongue down my throat. I didn't realize that to get into the business, silly me, he also intended to get into my pants. And just a week later, when I was in Los Angeles, meeting with a high-ranking publicist, it happened again again in a car, and he took my neck in his hand, and he shoved my head so hard into his crotch, I couldn't breathe. Am I the only one getting this, or is other people getting this? So These are the events that suck the life out of all of your self-confidence. Right. These are the events that until recently, I didn't even call assault. And this is why we have so much work 
to do. After my years, Miss America, I continued to meet a lot of well-known people, including Donald Trump. When this picture was taken in 1988, nobody could have ever predicted where we'd be today. <laughs> Me fighting to end sexual harassment in the workplace. He, President of the United States, in spite of it. And shortly thereafter, I got my first gig in television news in Richmond, Virginia. Check out that confident smile with the bright pink jacket. Not so much the hair. I was working so hard to prove that blondes have a lot of brains. But ironically, one of the first stories I covered was the Anita Hill hearings in Washington, D.C. And shortly thereafter, I too was sexually harassed in the workplace. I was covering a story in rural Virginia. And when we got back into the car, my cameraman started saying to me, wondering how much I had enjoyed when he touched my breasts when he put the microphone on me, and it went downhill from there. I was bracing myself against the passenger door. This was before cell phones. I was petrified. I actually envisioned myself rolling outside of that door as the car was going 50 miles per hour, like I'd seen in the movies, and wondering how much it would hurt. When the story about Harvey Weinstein came to light, one of the most well-known movie moguls in all of Hollywood, the allegations were horrific. But so many women came forward, and it made me realize what I had done meant something. He had such a lame excuse. He said he was a product of the 60s and 70s, and that that was the culture then. Yeah. That was the culture then, and unfortunately, it still is. Why? Because of all the myths that are still associated with sexual harassment. Women should just take another job and find another career. Yeah, right. Tell that to the single mom working two jobs, trying to make ends meet, who's also being sexually harassed. Women, they bring it on themselves by the clothes that we wear and the makeup that we put on. Yeah, I guess those hoodies that Uber engineers wear in Silicon Valley are just so provocative. <laughs> Women make it up. Yeah, because it's so fun and rewarding to be demeaned and taken down. I would know. Women bring these claims because they want to be famous and rich. Our own president said that. I bet. <laughs>
Focus on getting my apartment. Okay, this has got to come off. 